Let me read the passage for you. Philippians 3, from verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 1. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and you would open our hearts to your word for Jesus sake. Amen. The theme this morning is pressing on, perseverance, keeping going, pressing on. In this passage Paul uses the language of athletics. He describes himself like a a runner in a race, not looking back forgetting what is behind, straining forwards, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. In my teenage years and early 20s, I did a lot of running, a lot of racing, both on the track and cross-country, racing through wind and snow, up and down hills, through mud up to your shins, bursting my lungs to reach the finish line. And it wasn't just the races, it was all the training as well, getting up early on a winter's morning to get in a long run before school, struggling to stay awake during class, getting home from school, smashing, smashing out my homework, then jumping on the bike to cycle down to Tooting Beck Athletics Track for another gut-busting session. And that's nothing compared to the kind of dedication and perseverance that Olympic athletes demonstrates. You ask an Olympic athlete, why on earth do you do it? Why, why do you make such sacrifices? You could have asked me as an 18-year-old with Olympic ambitions, why do you do it? You do it for the prize. You do it for the podium. Standing with the national anthem playing and the gold medal around your neck. That is Paul's theme in this passage. Pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. And it's striking that this is his theme because he's just told us all about salvation by grace. 
He's just told us in the first half of chapter three that a right standing before God is not based on our efforts. Before he was a Christian, if you remember last week, Paul was trusting in self, his pedigree and his performance. He thought righteousness, a right standing before God, was something you earned by trying really hard to be good. But when he became a Christian, he realised that righteousness is a gift, a gift from God received simply by trusting in Christ and his work on our behalf. And so it's really striking that Paul goes on immediately to talk about striving and straining and making effort, pressing on. You see, being saved by grace does not mean living a life without effort. The New Testament is full of commands to make every effort, to work hard. The difference is the motivation. We're not working hard to earn our salvation. We're working hard in response to our salvation. If you're trusting in Christ this morning, you're already saved fully, eternally. You're secure. Now, out of love and gratitude, live a life of joyful obedience and service. I think my favourite part of our church vision statement is where we try and describe what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it says we're resting in grace and striving to love. Resting and striving. That's the Christian life. And the passage we're looking at this morning is a striving passage. Striving, straining, pressing on. That's the normal Christian life. And Paul is like the athletics coach, cheering his runners on. Keep going, he's saying. You're doing really well. Don't give up. You're almost there. Keep pressing on. But Paul isn't just a coach cheering on from the sidelines. He's also a fellow runner in the race. Paul is urging his readers to follow his example, to keep pressing on. That's the big point of the sermon this morning. Press on, press on. And then there are a number of sub points that you can see on your sheets. How are we to press on? Well, firstly, keeping your eyes on heaven. Paul says, the way I keep going is this. I press on with my eyes fixed on heaven. Look down at verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is Paul's goal that he's pressing on toward? Well, he's just told us in verse 11, he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. He's talking there about the day when Jesus Christ will return and will raise all people. It's a fixed day in the future guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul says in verse 20, we're eagerly awaiting a saviour to come from heaven. And when he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's what Paul is pressing on towards. But he knows he's not there yet. 
It may be that some in Philippi were claiming that all the blessings of heaven could be ours now. But Paul is very clear, isn't he? Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He, he's not there yet. That's why he's pressing on. And it's so important for us to remember this. That, yes, there are blessings we can experience now, but there's so much that's not yet our experience. So we can know Christ now, genuinely, personally. The Christian life is our personal relationship with Jesus, but we don't yet see him face to face. One day we'll be with him. One day we'll see him, but that's future, not yet. Or as Paul says in verse 10, we can experience the power of Christ's resurrection here and now, giving us power to serve, power to witness. We have the spirit who raised Christ from the dead living in us. But we've not yet been raised physically ourselves. We still live in mortal, sinful bodies. We still struggle daily with temptation. The sinful nature doesn't get any less sinful as the Christian life goes on. One day we'll have resurrection bodies, perfectly free from sin. No more letting the Lord down. No more shame. But that's future. Not yet. See, our mistake as Christians is to forget the not yet. We forget that most of the benefits of knowing Christ, the vast majority, come beyond this life. And when we forget that, we can very easily get discouraged and feel hard done by and ask, is it really worth it? Because there is a cost, isn't there? There's a cost to being a Christian. I mean, think of Paul. Before he was a Christian, he'd been a respected Pharisee. He'd studied at the best Jewish theological college. He was a, a rising star. But think of him now as he writes this letter. He's in prison because the Jews don't like what he's saying about Jesus. He's on trial for his life. He's no longer respected or liked or popular or comfortable. And all because he's a Christian. And yet he's full of joy and he's pressing on. Because he's got his eyes fixed on heaven and he knows the future is secure. Did you notice that in verse 12? He says he's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Yes, Paul's pressing on to take hold of that future glory. But he knows that ultimately it's Jesus who has taken hold of him. And he's secure in the Saviour's grip. And so he can endure the cost now because his eyes are fixed on heaven. I don't know the details of what it costs you to be a Christian. What it costs at home, trying to witness to family and friends. What it costs at work, taking a stand on issues, maybe being disadvantaged as a result. I don't know the public pressure, uh, the pu public struggle with peer pressure or the private struggle with temptation. I don't know what it's cost you emotionally, mentally, or financially to follow Jesus. But I do know it's worth it. Heaven is real. Our future is secure. And it's utterly, utterly glorious. So press on. 
with your eyes fixed on heaven. Secondly, press on forgetting what's behind. See that in verse 13? Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. This doesn't mean it's wrong to look back, to give thanks for God's work in the past, to learn from mistakes in the past. I think there are two things Paul has in mind here, maybe more. He doesn't dwell on what he's lost, his position, popularity, comfort. He doesn't dwell on the cost because it looks very small against the certainty of heaven. God never trivialises the cost. Jesus knows from experience how real it is, but he does call us to get it into perspective. Nor does Paul dwell on his regrets. Remember verse 6? He had more than most to regret. He had persecuted Christians to death. He had blood on his hands. But Paul is a forgiven man. And he knows that if God has forgiven the past, then he can put it behind him too. And so can we, friends. Maybe some of us need to hear this, particularly this morning. Maybe there's a particular thing in our past which fills us with guilt and shame, something on our conscience for which we find it hard to accept God's forgiveness. Let me encourage you this morning to look again to the cross, to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Do you not think that sacrifice is sufficient to pay for your sin? He willingly gave his life for you. His blood can cover every sin. So press on, forgetting what's behind. Thirdly, press on, straining towards what's ahead. I wonder if that's how you would describe your Christian life. Straining toward what is ahead. I said at the start, the Christian life is one of resting in grace and striving to love. And it's difficult sometimes to work out how those two things relate. But I wonder if the image of the athlete is helpful again. I remember when I was at university going on a training camp that was uh, run by the British Milers Club. And they had Hisham El Garouj's coach there. And um, I'm sure you all know who Hisham El Garouj is, for those who may have forgotten. He's the current 1500 meter world record holder. And he set that world record back in 1998. For the last 25 years, no one's really come even close to his record, 326 for 1500 meters, just amazing. Although it is quite exciting right now. Uh, A young Norwegian athlete, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, is finally getting close to that record. But anyway, El Garouj, phenomenal athlete. You know, just a joy to watch such a fluid running style. But he had a brutal training regime, which his coach outlined for us. And at the training camp, I asked his coach, you know, how much does El Garouj sleep? And his coach said, uh, about eight hours a night. Which I found a bit surprising. But then he added, oh, and every afternoon he has a two to three hour siesta. You see, for an athlete to keep up that level of physical exertion, requires disciplined rest. So for the Christian, in order to live lives of straining, striving, sacrificial service without burning out, we're going to need disciplined rhythms of rest and renewal. 
But the Christian life is a life of straining. Gospel-driven, gospel-motivated straining, making every effort, working up a spiritual sweat, spending and being spent in the service of Christ and for the cause of the gospel. That's the normal Christian life. That's the mature Christian life. Did you see that in verse 15? I wonder what you think of when you imagine a mature Christian. Someone who's settled and steady. They've arrived at a place of maturity. They're not perfect, but pretty close to it. The struggles of youth are a thing of the past. And so is the zeal and urgency of youth. They've, they've settled. They've arrived. But that is not the picture of maturity that Paul gives us. Look at what he says, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, should have the same sort of attitude to life that Paul did. You see, the mature people are the ones who know they haven't arrived who are dissatisfied with themselves, who, as they get to know the Lord better, are increasingly aware of how far they fall short of God's holiness. Remember the cross diagram? As you go on in the Christian life, it's one of growing in awareness of God's holiness and awareness of your sinfulness. And they're pressing on. They're practicing spiritual disciplines, confessing sin, devoted to prayer, pursuing Christ, feeding on his word, And they're pouring themselves out in sacrificial service of others. Paul says, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. In other words, if you think differently about maturity, well, you need God to change your mind. Because the really mature are the ones who know how far they still have to go. It's a beautiful thing when you meet an older Christian and they're just as keen for Jesus. There's a humility. There's, a, there's a, a sense that they haven't arrived. There's a desire to grow and learn. Then verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. We're all at different stages of the Christian life. Some have been Christians longer. Some have made more progress. Some know God better than others. That's not the point. I'm to live up to how well I know the Lord and you're to live up to how well you know him. What matters is not so much where we've got to or what we know, but whether we're moving forwards, pressing on, straining towards what is ahead. So we're to press on, keeping our eyes fixed on heaven, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead. Finally, following faithful examples. Look again at verse 17. Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. What was that example, that model? Well, it's, I think, what we've been memorizing in Philippians 2, 6-11. That passage is really the centerpiece of the whole letter. It's the humility and exaltation of Jesus, dying and rising. It's his costly obedience, self-giving service, followed by glory and honour. That's the pattern that Paul lived by. And therefore he could rejoice even as he sits in the prison cell facing death because he knew that following Christ meant suffering now, glory to come. 
And remember the examples that Paul gave us back in chapter 2. Timothy working his socks off for the gospel. Epaphroditus risking his life for the work of Christ. Because they knew the pattern. Suffering now. Glory to come. And Paul says follow those who live by that pattern. Costly obedience now. Sacrificial service now. Because they're sure of glory to come. Follow faithful examples, says Paul, and beware following those who live otherwise. Verse 18, For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. In other words, beware. There are plenty of religious people who live according to a different pattern. We might call it here and now religion. Here and now religion. Paul calls them enemies of the cross. They have a religion, but it's a religion without the cross. See, there are two problems with the cross. Firstly, it's humbling. It tells us we're not good enough for God, no matter how good we think we are. It says our sin is so serious, it deserves the judgment Jesus faced. It says we can't save ourselves. It's very humbling. And the cross is also very demanding because Jesus calls us to follow him in the way of the cross, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And if we follow a crucified Lord, it will mean suffering and sacrifice and service. So if you want an easier religion, just miss out the cross. And that seems to be what these people in verses 18 and 19 did. Their God is their stomach. They're just living for physical pleasure and comfort here and now. Their mind is set on earthly things. And Paul says we need to beware. Not judge them. If anything, weep for them. But beware of following their example. Because we're all natural suffering avoiders. We're all attracted to easy religion. You know, versions of Christianity that say you don't have to speak for Christ because everyone's way to God will get them there in the end. Versions of Christianity that say God affirms us as we are, so we don't need to talk about sin or repentance. Versions of Christianity that say God is out to fulfill us completely in the here and now, or bless us materially, without fail in the here and now. All very easy, all totally false. So be on guard against here and now religion. Keep your eyes rather on those who live as Jesus did, following the example of Christ, suffering now, glory to come. We conclude. Paul says in chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Do you remember he said something similar back at the end of chapter 1? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See, you don't stand firm by standing still. You stand firm by pressing on, 
eyes fixed on heaven, forgetting what's behind, straining to what's ahead, following faithful examples. The secret to standing firm, the secret to pressing on, is being convinced about the future. You see, we'll only be able to accept costly obedience now if we're convinced about heaven. We'll only press on in personal holiness now if we're convinced about the glory to come. We'll only witness to Christ in a way that could lose us friends if we're convinced about the future, the new creation. We'll only give ourselves our time, talents and treasure if we're convinced about heaven. Just think as we finish what studying for exams, pregnancy and engagement all have in common. We've got people in the church in all those categories, haven't we? It seems to me you'd never get through any of them if there wasn't an end in sight. The holiday after the exams, the birth of the baby, the joy of marriage. None of them are states of existence you'd want to be permanent. What gets you through engagement is the prospect of marriage. What gets you through pregnancy is the prospect of the baby. So what is it that gets you through the costliness of following Jesus? What keeps you going as a Christian? Paul says, the prospect of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there. The Christian life isn't just life here and now. This is just the waiting room, the transit lounge. There's heaven to follow, a glorious new creation. And I don't care how many Qantas frequent flyer points you've got and how plush your transit lounge experience is. Heaven, the new creation, it's not worth missing for anything. Martin Luther was once asked how he lived the Christian life the way he did. He said this. I live as if Jesus died for me yesterday, rose today, and is coming to take me to heaven tomorrow. That reminds me of the communion liturgy that we're going to say a bit later. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, there is a day coming when the one who once died in our place on the cross, the one now risen and ascended in glory, the one we've served and followed in this life will appear and he'll take us in his arms and enfold us in his love. He'll wipe away all our tears and we'll know without any doubt that it was worth it. Shall we pray? Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise that you will come again and take us home and transform our lowly bodies to be like your glorious body. Thank you that you have taken hold of us and our future is secure and utterly glorious. Please, Help us to press on. Please show each of us what it means for us to live up to what we've already attained. What it means for each of us to strain towards what is ahead. Help us together as a, 
as a church to stand firm in one spirit, partners in the gospel, striving together as we follow you in lives of sacrificial service, certain of glory to come. We pray for your namesake. Amen.